All right, well, we've been in a series that we basically, again, Pastor uh, Eric and I, we wanted to set out to do a series focusing on the incarnation of Jesus. And so we started studying and we said, okay, this is going to be a good five to six week on the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus, that God became man. And then we're like, oh no, maybe it's going to be eight weeks. And then we're like, oh, maybe it's going to be 10 weeks. And then we're like, forget it. Let's go to, straight to Easter. We're going to be focusing on the, the incarnation of Jesus all the way through, all the way to Easter. And it's been awesome. And if you haven't grappled with the fact that, that Jesus is absolutely, as a person, and Christianity as a movement, if you haven't really, really sunk your teeth into the fact that it's a revolutionary movement, then you have forgotten Scripture. We, that's why we're, we're paging through the Gospels and the book of Hebrews as we look at what Jesus did and said that was absolutely revolutionary. It was absolutely mind-blowing. Um, last couple of weeks, we, we had uh, two people uh, fill in for me uh, for for preaching, because I was in Israel with, with the crew um, in Israel. It was amazing. We had a phenomenal time. It was so cool. But there was this really crazy event that took place. We were trying to get onto um, the, the main quad right in front of the Western Wall. And that's where, where um, Jews go and they pray. Orthodox Jews go and pray. They've got the guys on one side, the ladies on the other side. It's like a, a really, really contentious spot. It's a place that if you wanted to cause a problem, you'd probably cause a problem there. And so getting into that area is like going through TSA. You've got metal detectors. You've got security and everything else. And if you don't believe me, you can ask Jason Domingo, who's back visiting with us today. Give it up for Jason and Amy. It's so good to have them back. Jamie, uh, Jamie, Jamie. I never thought we could tell him. Jason is a, is a military chaplain now. Um, and one of the things uh, they had as an experience, I think, going into being a military chaplain was going through and nearly getting arrested in Israel. We're trying to get on the, onto the, the main uh, quad of the Western Wall and Jason decided to bring a, a pocket knife. Um, yeah, they weren't fans of it either. And so like, it, it, was, it was a crazy moment, but, but even that was as crazy as that was, wasn't the level that we experienced this time. As we're walking through, it was like, like just a Jewish mosh pit. I mean, we're just, you're trying to get through and as we're going through, our people were caught in the middle of this, this Riot, not riot, but a protest where you've got, and it wasn't Jew versus Muslim. It was Jew versus Jew. It was uber right-wing Jewish people versus more lefty progressive Jewish people. It was religious versus somewhat secular. It was, it was all across the board. And it was like everyone decided to show up and have a fight right there. And here comes like Mission Bible Church. Yay! We're like walking right through. And my kids are like, and I'm like, I know. And so we're trying to get, to, it was bananas. I'm not even going to like encapsulate all the craziness of that, except for once we got through the mosh pit and got to the other side of it, our tour guide, who is an Israeli Jew, looked at us with sadness in his eyes. And he said, I have to apologize to you. You have all just experienced the privilege of seeing the brokenness and division of my country. And I'm sorry, and it breaks my heart. To which all of us were like, bro, we're Americans. <laughs> Nobody does division better than us. <laughs> you guys are preschool compared to us, okay? We, we, we are, we're varsity level divisive. We get you on this, okay? And, and the thing is, is that not only do we understand where they're coming from, but Jesus understands where we're coming from. Jesus was born under and lived under a broken government. And if you don't believe me, I just, just do a brief history of the, the nation of Israel and their governmental system. It starts with creation. If you're just looking at the people of God in ancient Israel, it starts with creation where God is, he is the government. He's in charge. Who decides what happens? Boom, it's God. Who decides where you go? Boom, it's God. Who decides where you live? 
boom, it's God. Are we going to go to war? Yep. But is it because we want to do it? Nope. It's because God told us to do it. Do we take on the, these people if God tells us not to do it? No. We only go where God wants us to go, and that's God is the government. That's what's called a theocracy, right? And so, and in the midst of this, over time, people start saying, I want a king. I want a king. And God's like, good, you got one. It's me. I'm the perfect. No, no, no. I want a dude. I want a dude that's a king. I want someone that I can look to. I want, because everyone else has got a king. Everyone's got a person they can look to. They voted for him and they put him in charge. And, and they, that's the guy that represents them. And God, we love you. We believe in you, but you're invisible. And it's just hard to explain to the neighbors. And so like, we want a dude. We want a person that we can look to. And God said, listen, you do that. You take that step. You get a dude to be your king and two things are going to happen. He's going to send you to war and it to, for his agenda. And secondly, he's going to tax you. He's going to tax you to support his agenda and his wars that he's doing that I'm not endorsing. If you have a dude be your king, that's what's going to happen. Like, yeah, yeah, good, blah, blah, blah. Let's have a king. And so all of a sudden that comes into the monarchy. The monarchy is a time where a human king is the government. That starts in 1037. And, and everything that God said would happen did happen. They get taxed. They go to war. Ultimately, they, they break off into, a, they have a civil war where they're a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. It's a mess. And in the midst of it, God's allowing that to be a teachable moment. If, if you're a high schooler or a junior higher, your parents have let you do dumb stuff as a teachable moment. Like when my kids want to wear a hoodie and it's like negative 20, teachable moment. It's like, Lord, just a little bit of frostbite, just a little, just a little bit of frostbite. Because you allow, you know, something to be painful to experience. And so that is the experience of the monarchy. You got a dude as a president, this, president, this is what's going to happen. But in the midst of that, God still has boundaries and parameters where he says to them, in the midst of the fact that you're going a direction I didn't prescribe for you to go, you got to make sure if you're in my country, this is the promised land I gave you, you have to have me as your God. Yeah, you got a dude that's your leader, your president, but I'm still your God. You don't worship other gods. Idolatry is out. And also, you treat people differently than other countries treat other people. You treat foreigners and aliens that are coming into your land differently than everyone else. And the people are like, great. And then so what do they do? They go right into idolatry and they go right into mistreating the foreigners and aliens that come into their land. And all the prophets like nail those two things over and over again. And God says, if you keep this up, I, if you continue to declare your independence from my leadership, I will step back and outside empires are going to come in and take you out. And that's exactly what took place. Um, all of a sudden you have exile, where you have the northern kingdom first getting exiled out, and then the southern kingdom getting exiled out a little bit time later. And that's in part because of the fact that of the around 20 kings that were in the northern kingdom over that time period, and 20 kings or so in the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom had about 75% of the kings that were bad, but 25% were good. The northern kingdom, 100% were bad. It was just bad news all around. And so God exiles them out. All of a sudden, they're, 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 they're in the Babylonian area, and, and the, the, um, the Babylonians take them, the Assyrians take them, and they're, they're, they're in exile. They didn't vote for these people. They're in a foreign land, and they just long to come home. After 70 years from that southern kingdom exile, the Persians let them come back home. And they're like, sweet, we're in charge. We're back home, we're back in charge. Which is kind of like, not really. Because the Persians were still in charge. But then Alexander the Great comes in and the Greek occupation takes place. And so now they're occupied by, by Alexander the Great's empire. But the people that were in place over the, Israel, the Judean area overstep their bounds religiously. They do some messed up stuff to try to show everyone that they're boss. And then there's a huge revolt. The Greeks get kicked out. And all of a sudden the Roman occupation comes in in 63 BC. 
And a Roman occupation where we have a puppet King Herod the Great put in place. And 59 years later, Jesus is born. And if you're like, well, hold on a second, wasn't he supposed to be born on like, like 0 AD or 1 AD or something? Jesus is perfect, human timelines aren't. He was probably born right around 4 BC, 59 years after Herod the Great and the Roman occupation gets taken in. Now, Herod the Great, he's both Roman and Jewish. I mean, he was kind of like Link Week, yeah, I got some Jewish in my blood. And it's like, okay, you count. And so you're going to do what we want to do, and you're going to keep the people happy because they're going to think that you're like diet Jewish, and you're, and so, but you're going to really be our, doing what we want you to do. And so that's what takes place. So here's the thing that you have to understand. If you're like, man, I just hate the fact that we have a broken government. I hate that no matter what we do, our system is just messed up and broken and bad, and it's never been worse. I would just say, scoreboard. Jesus grew up in a much more broken scenario than you because Jesus is God. He not only knows what it's like to have humanity reject him with, with the authority of God, but reject him as king. But then the very first breath Jesus takes when he came to this world, this broken world, to rescue it, the very first breath, the government wants him dead. Herod the Great kills off every, all the two-year-old and younger in the Bethlehem area. Now again, I don't know how bad you think the government is right now, but more than likely... The government hasn't tried to kill you and, and, and do so by like killing off everyone in your neighborhood just to get to you. But that's what Jesus experienced. And Jesus grows up in that broken system. And, in, and, and we all know that he didn't come to this world just to, to die on the cross. He also came to showcase a different way, a different living, a different kingdom. So what does this God-man do in a broken governmental system growing up to show his disciples how to operate under their own brand of governmental breakdown and and situations that are broken up? How does Jesus operate when politics are sideways and south and broken? We see that in the passage in Mark chapter 12. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up. And it's been awesome seeing people bring your own Bibles and mark them up. We're big fans of that, especially through this series. By the end of this year, you're going to be able to look back and see almost like a journal, all the things that you've learned to this, to this and many other series, and even your own devotionals. is so cool. But we're going to go ahead and read from Mark. Now, Mark wasn't an eyewitness, but he was the sidekick to Peter who was. And so all the stuff we get in the, in the gospel of Mark is Peter's words from being an eyewitness of Jesus, who again came across far more revolutionary than a lot of us want to admit. If you could stand as we read God's word, Mark chapter 12. We're just going to read the two verses, 13 and 15, and get to the rest of it later. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Okay, let's take a look at that passage and study a little bit. One of the crazy things is, first off, they get down here, and I love the line down here, because um, they, they, they ask the question twice. Should we pay the imperial tax? And then if Jesus was going to go gray area on them or something, they, they want to get it down to the nitty-gritty. No, 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 this is black and white. Yes or no? Should we or shouldn't we? We need you to be able to give us an answer. Now, here's the cool thing about this passage that I, I just didn't see leading up to this study, is that later on they sent some of who? Pharisees and the Herodians. These are two separate political groups. The Pharisees represent the political group of the religious system. The Herodians, remember Herod the Great? Herodians, that's his crew. That's his legacy. 
So they're representing Rome's interests. So these guys don't like each other, but a common enemy makes friends, right? And so Pharisees and Herodians both don't like Jesus, and so they're trying to catch him. Now here's the thing that's so crazy. What is it they're asking him about? What specifically are they asking him about? This imperial tax. Now this wasn't just, Jesus, are you like pro-taxes or anti-taxes? Do you like taxing the rich or, or are you like, what, what are you, what, what, what's your political? That's not what they're asking. They're not talking about sales tax. They're not talking about income tax. They're talking about a, a separate tax because other taxes existed in this era. But the imperial tax was unique. This was a tax directly to Rome, to the empire. And it was a denarius. It wasn't a lot. It wasn't a lot of money. A denarius is like one day's pay for the, the poorest person. So the poorest person's pay is one day is, is a denarius, and that's all that they had to pay. The problem with it was it was so stinking offensive. Because basically the only reason for the tax is we're taxing you because you have the benefit of being under our rulership as Rome. We're taxing you just because we rule you. This, it's an insignificant amount. But we're just reminding you, you are ruled. You are a people that are ruled by us. You do not rule yourself. And it was so offensive, it went, it, the first time that it was implemented was 25 years before this conversation. And when it first started, when they first instituted it, it started a riot by a guy named Judas the Galilean. Okay, now Judas, when we hear Judas, we're like, ooh, different Judas. Um, and this is, Judas was like a common name, like John or Eric or whatever. So Judas the Galilean was a guy who, when the imperial tax was first instituted, he says, oh no. Brothers and sisters in my Jewish, my Jewish neighborhoods, let's revolt. We are going to reject the imperial tax. They don't have the right to tax us, and so don't pay it. Don't pay it. But on top of that, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get an armed group of people. We're going to go down to the temple because there's a bunch of pagan Gentiles in that temple area, and we're going to cleanse the temple. And so they go down, 25 years before this, they go down and they cleanse the temple. They kick out all the Gentiles, and they start armed. They do this as, as an armed militia. To, they go do this. And on top of that, they start saying, here's what's going to happen. The, the kingdom of God has come. What Isaiah talked about is happening now. The kingdom of God is now, and we're going to, we're going to bring it on in, and God is going to be our king, not Rome. Caesar's not king, it's God. And then they killed him. They killed Judas the Galilean who revolted against the temple tax, the imperial, I'm not the temple tax, the imperial tax, talking about the kingdom of God being now. You know when this event takes place, this conversation? I mean, it takes place 25 years after that, but it takes place in Jesus' timeline right after he does something specific, right after he cleanses the temple. Right after he goes into the temple and kicks out the people that are, that not, not the, the pagans, he actually kicks out um, his Jewish brothers and sisters that are, are making it into a, mar, a merchant. The area that was supposed to be for Gentiles to come and see the goodness of God. That to be in that outer court area, they turned into a marketplace. And, and so Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple. What's Jesus' primary message? The kingdom of God. In fact, in the book of Matthew, he says that phrase 50 times. And so all of a sudden, they're not asking, what's your perspective on taxes? They're asking Jesus the Galilean, are you a revolutionary like Judas the Galilean? Have you come to institute this kingdom of God and thwart the authority of Rome? Is that what you're after? Which is fascinating to me that that's what's taking place. What in the world does Jesus do as a response? Let's take a look. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. First off, I think it's hilarious that Jesus doesn't have any change on him. But isn't that just like Jesus? Is Jesus' movement all about like cash and like getting money and stuff? No, he's, not, he's starting a revolution with no bank. 
So he's like, uh, do you guys got any money? Can I buy, can, can Daenerys? Okay, bring it over. They brought him the coin and he asked them, what? Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. If you look at a denarius, what you see is you get the image of, of Caesar on it. Um, and, and what we, it's actually, what we have is Tiberius Caesar. Uh, Caesar is another name for the king, right? So you have King Tiberius. And then it also says, son of Augustus the divine. So his predecessor, who they looked at as God. So we have this king, King Tiberius, who's the son of God. And Jesus says, can you bring me that coin? What's, whose face is on that? What's, the, uh, what's it say in Greek on there again? What, what does that say on there? And, and this is the coolest thing in the world. And they, 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 they give them, they say, oh yeah, it's Caesar. And, and, and so Jesus sees that inscription. And he simply says this, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. The coinage was literally Caesar's. It, was, it came from his own cash of, of silver that he actually minted it out of his own wealth. And so he's like, this is Caesar's. Give, you've got a, you're in, a, in a, a colony that's run by Rome. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then what does he say? But give to God what is God's. Now here's the interesting thing. Caesar who's God, was totally cool having his face on a coin. In fact, um, pretty much any world religion is okay having a god or, or goddess on, on something. But way back at the beginning of, of Genesis, it's prescribed, do not, do not put the face, you, you don't put, have the image of God on anything. You don't put your, an image of God on an idol and worship it. You don't paint a picture of the image of God and worship that. You don't put the image of God on anything. Why? Because God has already put his image on something else. You, you are the image of God. So Jesus says to him, you're talking about this imperial tax? This is Caesar's. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Caesar can take your tax, but he can't take your heart. He can't take your allegiance. Your allegiance is not to Caesar. Your allegiance is only and exclusively to God. And all of a sudden, he ushers in this brand new perspective of a kingdom that operates underneath the kingdom, that actually is over the kingdom and will outlast the kingdom. Tony Evans puts it this way, Jesus didn't come to take sides, he came to take over. He's not, he's not picking the, the Republicans, the Democrats, the Pharisees, or the Herodians, he's taking over. He's like, no, 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 this is going to surpass all of this. This movement, this kingdom was before all those things, this kingdom is after all those things. This kingdom is above this. His kingdom, this kingdom that he talked about, is an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom that doesn't operate with power or, or lobbying. It doesn't, it doesn't operate with wealth. I mean, it's, again, it's God's kingdom, and it's, it surpasses all of those things. In fact, we, we, we're so pumped about this that it's Spy Kids this year. We're going to be talking about Jesus' upside-down kingdom and the fact that his kingdom values that we see in the Gospels are so different from what we normally gravitate towards. And we're going to have like a castle up here on stage that's literally flipped upside down. Just so that all the kids have this picture of Jesus' upside-down kingdom is just radically different from every other kingdom in human history. And here's the good news for you today, is that if Jesus is king and you belong to his kingdom— it radically changes you. It shifts you. It alters your perspective. If Jesus is king, and to the degree that you buy into his kingdom, you live in his kingdom, you operate as if his kingdom is actually real in the midst of whatever governmental system you're in in this country or if you move to some other country, regardless of what time frame you're in, if Jesus is king and you belong to his kingdom, it changes you in five ways. Here's the first way. Fear fades. 
If you are operating in a kingdom where the kingdom that you live in, the government system that you're in is broken, it decimates you and it it causes fear. Everything's going south. Everything's terrible. In fact, if you've ever made the decision to give to a particular candidate or a particular party, you have found that they will never, ever let you rest. They will continue to send you, hey, listen, we need, we need some more money. I know that we said last time it was the last time. Um, we, I know that we said that the last election was the critical one, that if we won this, that it would be all over, but we, we need some more money because boop, 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 boop. And then they basically front load fear. I've got a politician friend who wants to get out of politics because he hates the fact that within his own party system, that is part of the engine. The engine is fear. Why do we do what we do? Fear. We're f- afraid of losing our movement, our country, our ethics, or whatever. And, and it's, it's this massive fear. So give more money and get our candidate in. But if, if Jesus is king and you belong to his kingdom, fear fades in two ways. First off, we're able to obey the laws of the land. Romans 13 talks about that. And second off, we're able to work for the good of our lost country. In other words, we're able to be the best citizen in a broken country. Paul said in Romans 13 that you, we have... In the midst of the fact we have broken leaders, our job as people that are followers of Jesus the King under his kingdom is to submit to the leaders that are put above us. Submit to their rules. Not not rules that call us to sin. No, no, we always reject those. But to submit to their rules, even the rules that make us uncomfortable. Why? Paul's argument is because God put those people there. God is the one who puts kings and emperors and presidents in power, which is bonkers because I thought it was the electoral college. The crazy thing is, is that according to Paul and according to scripture, it is not the electoral college. It's not a coup. It's not a revolution that puts people in power. It's God who even puts wicked kings in power. And Paul's writing this to obey the laws of the land in a time when the king of the land, Nero, is killing Christians. That's his official Christian policy. It's not like he's like, it's not really friendly to Christians. It's not really a Judeo-Christian ethic. No, no, no. He's jumped over that. He said, yeah, I kill him. What's my policy with Christians? Murder. And Paul's like, yeah, obey the laws of the land. God put that guy in there. And and back even in the Old Testament, they were in exile. Work for the good of your lost country. Work for the good of the pagan broken world. Jeremiah put it this way. Look at this. Build houses. and This is in the time of exile when they're in Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. So you're not like this Amish sect where you're trying to like stay away from them. You're like shopping local. You're, You're trying to benefit these pagan workers that are around you. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the pagan city of which I have carried you into exile. Even this bad country that you're a part of is part of my plan for you. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too, you too will prosper. How in the world does somebody have that type of an attitude towards a broken government? The only way they can, the only way that they can, if they feel like they're on the minority movement of that side, the only way that they can is if they understand that, G- that God is king, he's in control. And if God's in control, God is gonna outlast this bad empire that I'm a part of right now. Fear fades, but not only fear fades, also hate gets hijacked. And a lot of us know this, the, the passage where Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount about hate. He says this, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, I've always read this passage as, okay, we all got people that we can't stand. 
They're annoying. It's okay to hate. In fact, if someone does something that's like jerky or disrespectful, if you don't hate them, there's something weird about you. You should hate. And then Jesus is like, no, no, no. And then I'm like, okay, Jesus says something different. He says, actually, love, love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I shouldn't hate people. Okay, that's great. But we don't understand this is built on this. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. This passage is not just talking about if you got a jerky coworker or a person that's down the street that's not super respectful, love them. It sits on if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, everyone, whether you're an atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, or Christian, you understand that you, you know the phrase, go the extra mile. In fact, there's tons of memes. I just did a search on Google for a couple of them, and they look like this. Want to be successful? Go the extra mile. Here's another one. Go the extra mile. It's, it's from a group called Make Me Better. How do I make me better? Go the extra mile. Or the group that spent the most on graphics. Go the extra mile and succeed in life. And here's the thing. All of those that are sourcing that phrase that was said by Jesus about going the extra mile have no clue what they're talking about. Because this is not just a, hey, you want to be more successful? Just, you know, don't give up. Just go the extra mile. He's not saying that. He's, he's using a very political scenario that everyone who heard the Sermon on the Mount would have heard and understood. If anyone forces you to go one mile, everyone's like, <gasps> I know exactly what he's talking about because Rome is our occupier. And Rome does, I mean, they, they have great road systems and they have great building systems and aqueduct systems. It's amazing what you could do when you have slaves. And they like just basically have got them all over the place. And they also like have these like mile markers all the way along. And what they do is this, they're like, look, I got to carry all this gear. I've got a pack that's between 60 and 75 pounds. And I've got a long way to travel between all the places that Rome is occupied because Caesar is crazy. And so I, I don't want to have to carry this all over the place. It wears me out. I can't be my best if I'm totally dead tired. And so Rome comes up with a policy. Okay, here's what you do in the Judean area. If you need to go from point A to point B, find yourself a Jew and say, excuse me, Jew, come on over here. I've got to go over there. Well, I got to go over there. I, I know you don't, but you got laws here. And laws say that you're a Jewish person that has to submit to my authority. And so I'm going to go over here and you got to carry my pack one mile that way. You don't have to go more than a mile, but you have to go a mile. Once you get to a mile marker, you, you can just put off your pack and you can walk on back. And, that, and, that, and that's how it went. And so Jews hate this. Like how in the world is it, I mean, it, was that policy racist? You bet it was. Was it a governmental overreach? Yeah, 100%. Like, do you understand, dude? I got to go. If, I go. if I'm not going this way, my job's over there. If I go with you that way, I'm not just going one mile. I'm going one mile there and one mile back. That's two miles. And I'm carrying your bag. And then I got to get to work. And I'm, I'm late. And I'm dead tired. And I'm not going to be efficient. I'm going to lose my job. And then I got to go home and explain it to my wife. And she's not cool with me right now. And you gotta, that's all that I got to go through? And so they're talking, as Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, everyone's leaning in going, yes. Is this the part where Jesus wants us to get militant? Like, if anyone forces you to go one mile, slit their throat. Yes! Everyone's like cheering, high-fiving. Like, I knew it. I love this guy. No. If anyone forces you to go one mile, what? Go with them two miles. What a dumb thing to live out. Next time they're on a road, all of a sudden they see a Roman centurion or official or soldier. Hey, Jewish person, come here. Take my pack one mile that way. Okay. And so they're walking. All of a sudden they get to the one mile. All right, all right, all right. That's the marker. One mile, you can drop a pack. No, that's cool. I'm going to keep on going. Let's go. No, 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 no. You, 
drop the pack, man. You don't have to go two miles. Just the law says one mile. I know, I know, I'm just gonna go two. What are you doing? You don't have to go two miles. This is out of your way. Caesar, who's God, says we only have to go one mile. It's like, yeah, but I believe Jesus is God, and he says go two, so let's go. And it's like all of a sudden, all of a sudden you have this soldier, this, the Roman soldier trying to catch up with the Jewish guy who's marching along. Like, what's wrong with you? Why would you do this? Can you imagine the conversations that happen in that second mile? Can you imagine the picture that these Roman soldiers all of a sudden have of Christians in that second mile? taking a governmental overreach and saying, I see your governmental overreach and I'll double it. Why, because I'm a doormat? No, because, I'm fu- because Jesus is king. And I, and I actually believe that his kingdom is better than your kingdom. And so I'm gonna operate what he says. Fear fades, hate gets hijacked. And not only that, political idolatry dissolves. And interesting, I, I want you to know that I'm not saying political identity dissolves. Because if you want to call yourself a Republican, you're part of the Republican Party, or a Democrat, or you're a Libertarian, or whatever, I I hope if you're a Christian, you've come to that conclusion because you're like, you know what, I'm looking at the Bible, and there's no platform that's perfect, but I I really believe that this is something that's important for us to do now, and so I'm a part of this party, or I'm going to vote with this party on this. And and, and that's, you know, I, I want you to know that political identity isn't sin. It's not. But political idolatry is and this is how you know that you're a, you've got political idolatry. If you all of a sudden think that your side is angelic and their side is demonic, like your side is impeccable. You know what? You want to know the, don't, don't tell me anything about my side or my candidate. My candidate, you know, all that stuff you're saying about him, it's not true. He's actually way better than you think. He's like, per, he's amazing. And you, you know what? You want to know who's wrong? Your candidate. Your candidate's got everything wrong. You know, you know what your side, your side is way messed up. You start talking about things like, like, you know what? Here's the thing with Republicans. Republicans, man, they're all racist, homophobe, bigots, and they hate people. I know, because I've interviewed all of them. They're all that way, 100% of them. You want to know what's wrong with Democrats? Oh, they're they're the Marxist socialists. They just want to convert all to veganism and drive Priuses. And that's, they're all like that. 100% of them. I know. I know because I've interviewed them all. We start having these absolute perspectives like my side is whoa and their side is ha. And and, and it's so goofy because what, what that ends up doing is it causes us to think that this is the epicenter. Actually, could you go back one, one, um, Lisa, uh, this is the epicenter of of all that is important. And the truth is is that it's not. And the reality is, is that, again, um, even just in our country, Republicans and Democrats, do you realize that these two parties weren't even in our country when our country was founded? They came about. And you know that there were other political parties that people were super passionate about that have died out over time? So why in the world would we give our lives to a political party and defend it as if it's divine and holy when it's, it's a party that's it's got holes, just like anything else that humans do? That's just the reality. One thing about that that's important is this. If you are somebody who the people in your world know you more as a Republican because you have proclaimed the good news of Republicanism before they know that you're a Christian, then your politics may be, an idol, may be an idol. If people in your world know more about how passionate you are about being a Democrat because you've proclaimed with all your energy the good news of, the, of democratism or libertarianism or whatever ism that you ascribe to, and they know that first and foremost is a solution, that works, that works if there's no king in a kingdom. If all we have are the governmental systems that are in place, then we're gonna be desperate. And we're going to defend them like they're divine movements. This is the only savior of the world. 
But see, as Christians, we don't have that problem because we know the Savior of the world, don't we? And we're part of a, we have a king and we belong to his kingdom who's going to outlast these. And that means that we continue to be political for sure, but we do so from a completely different angle, which actually leads us to the next thing, which is that we're able to disagree without dishonor. Disagreement can be expressed without dishonor. And here's the important thing about that. We struggle with that as a people. We struggle with that as humans. And we struggle with that as a church. The church in general, man, we, 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 when we can divide over like some of the goofiest things, but then all of a sudden we get, every, every two years and every four years, all of a sudden we have this weird, like stilted relationship with one another where we feel like we, we got to figure out who we can talk to because if we talk politics or something, we're going to get really divisive. And it's part because of how we talk about it. I don't know if you've ever experienced a Thanksgiving dinner. I didn't have to say anything. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> now look, if politics, if the broken government that we're under is all that there is, you better fight at Thanksgiving. You'd be a fool not to. You better fight with your family and your neighbors and your coworkers. You better convert them to your side. Because if you don't, all is lost. But if there's a king and you belong to his kingdom, then you're able to actually disagree with people and realize, you know what? The gospel says that I've got, that I, I'm the chief of sinners, that, 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 I, that I have got blind spots all over me where I don't see my own wrong. And, and certainly my party has the same thing. So if I'm a Republican, there's probably things that my Democrat friends know and believe that I don't get because I don't see things the way that they do. So I should probably talk with them and maybe get to a point where like, you know what? I still see what you're saying is off, but I could disagree without dishonoring them. And many people in our church have gotten to that place. And I'm so proud of you. So proud of you. Because you could say, yeah, yeah, I, I land more as a Democrat or I land more as a Republican, but I'm able to talk with my, my Republican and Democrat brothers and sisters in a way that, that I'm able to disagree without dishonoring. But the Bible actually doesn't specifically talk about that. That we need to do. But the Bible doesn't specifically say that we need to, uh, to honor one another in that way politically. But it does say that we're supposed to honor, we're supposed to honor whoever's in charge, like the king or the emperor. First Peter says that. So if I haven't ticked you off already, just take a look. Now, chances are, when Pastor Dave asked me, what are you preaching on this weekend? I said, Jesus, was, Jesus lived in a broken government. He just went, ho, ho, ho. You're a glutton for punishment. Mm -mm. Chances are, though, you didn't vote for every one of these people. If you did, I want to take you out to lunch. I want to find out what makes your brain work the way it works because you're a unicorn. <laughs> Most people look at this picture and support some, maybe even love some, and don't support or even hate others. Chances are you've said something sideways about someone on this screen. I have. And that's perfectly normal and natural for anyone who doesn't have a king or a kingdom that's greater than the king and the kingdom of our current times. But if I have a king that's greater than, then all of a sudden I have a different approach to these people. Because again, Romans 13 talks about that. That it wasn't the electoral college. See, what took place on one day in November brought each of these people to where they're at. I could say that, but the reality is that it was God who put them there. God put him there for his own purposes. And so therefore, even if I, my person, my candidate doesn't win, and I'm bummed about that, 
I can say, okay, I've got a new, I got new marching orders for my king. And my king says that I am supposed to honor this person, whoever happens to be in charge at the time. Does that mean that I agree with them? No way. That's stupidity. I'm called to disagree and be smart. Well, so I could, I could disagree with anyone. Or I could say, look, I voted for this particular candidate. And I still disagree with some of their decisions. But that person was created by God. God loves them. And actually, God put them in, in, in position. Not because they're so perfect or their, their platform is so awesome. It's not. But because God's got purposes. Therefore, my, God's purpose for me is to disagree without dishonor. So, right now, that's, that's our, our position is to, to follow that. I mean, that, that's what, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to call that, follow that. And if you felt like up to this point, this whole sermon is all about the fact that you're supposed to just be like, okay, maybe, are we just supposed to be apathetic politically? Like, it doesn't matter. Hey, whatever, man. Republican, Democrat, liberta- libertarian, communist, we get taken over by Al-Qaeda. Whatever, man. Is that what the Bible's saying? No. The Bible says that we don't have the anxiety or antagonism that comes with broken governments and our human natural response to them. But the Bible also says that we're not called to be apathetic. In fact, one of the great things, if Jesus is king and you belong to his kingdom and you know that, you actually have the opportunity to see real change become possible. And that's exactly what took place. This minority movement led by a rabbi that got killed by the empire he was born into. The broken government won. They killed Jesus. They put him in the grave. They had two choices of who to kill, Barabbas or Jesus. Barabbas was a revolutionary who was anti-Rome, and Jesus was saying stuff like he's the son of God, which was threatening. Who did they decide to kill? Not Barabbas. They let Barabbas go. Why? Because you could always track Barabbas down and kill him later. Jesus was dangerous. He was a revolutionary, and they killed him. But if you kill Barabbas, you kill his movement. If you kill Jesus, you launch his. And all of a sudden, Jesus' movement gets launched because he comes back from the grave. And when he comes back from the grave, he sets all these people out into broken governments. Not just the the Palestinian broken government, the Judean broken government, but all the other broken governments. And And then all of a sudden, people from all these other broken governments are turning to Jesus the King. They start saying, no, not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord, which is absolutely political. And, and when that takes place, all of a sudden th- decisions are starting to be made. Because if Jesus is king, then I operate differently in my society. In that society, there was a thing called exposure. They didn't have abortion the way we have abortion. But they had exposure, where if you have a child and this child is not, you, you weren't ready for this child. You, you don't have the finances to support this child. You take that baby to the edge of a creek. Or you take that baby to the edge of a forest. And you walk away and you basically say, look, I didn't kill my child. The fates will do what they want with it. And eventually the wolves would come or they would die of exposure. And it was called, it was legal. It was a legal Roman practice. So what do Christians do? Christians go, well, I know that's legal, but Jesus is king and and I'm a part of his kingdom. So what did they do? They didn't have money. They didn't have two pennies rubbed together. But they're going and they're taking someone else's kid and taking him in. And so this child that was put there because people weren't ready for it, or the child was born with birth defects, or this child was born as a girl and they wanted a boy, they all of a sudden are are adopting in these girls and these kids with special needs and these, these kids that people weren't ready for and saying, you're my child to the day you die. Christians did that. All of a sudden you have situations where in the midst of that, you, you have uh, slavery was a reality. In fact, in the 4th century, in the 300s BC, Aristotle said slavery is a given. It's an absolute given. There's people that 
rule and there's people that just are born to be ruled. Slavery is a given. It's not even a good or bad. It just is a reality. It just is what it is. And by the fourth century AD, the Christians all of a sudden get to a point where they start having the capacity to be able to own slaves because slavery wasn't a racist thing primarily in the ancient world. It was a, well, it was a wealth thing. Do you got enough money? Well, then of course you're going to own people. They're going to help you do what you want to do. And so all of a sudden, Christians are starting to rise to power in the 300s. So do they turn to slavery? No. Augustine says slavery in the 4th century, slavery is the, is the result of sin. And so you have Christians who are saying, no, I know that this is normative in our society. I know that politically and legally it's all good, but we're not about it. We're not going to be a part of that because we believe that people are the, created in the image of God. All of a sudden you have people treating their spouses better. There were Roman groups going to take over areas that they thought Christianity was a threat. And when they got there, they found out that they, that they were a threat. They gathered together every week. They gathered together at five in the morning and then they made packs with each other. Like, aha, these revolutionary packs, what are they saying? And they found out that their packs were this. We are making a pact that this week we're gonna defraud nobody. This week we're gonna avoid cheating on our spouses. We're not gonna cheat on our spouses. And all of a sudden they're like, what? That's, that's what you're packed? You follow this king and this is your part of his kingdom and this is what you're doing? They didn't know what to say. It was almost as if Christians were living such good lives among the pagans that when they had an opportunity to call them out, they had nothing to say. Within a small time frame historically, Christians go from the minority movement that is killed off to being the group that takes over the very empire that was hunting them down. They take over the whole empire without one sword battle. How could you possibly do that? How could you? Well, you could do that if you're following a God who's got a bigger plan than the political agenda of the time, that he's a king and he's got a kingdom that he's ushering in that outlives your empire. That's what they believed and they were right. Which brings us back to that coin. You have an obligation as American citizens to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You, you, you're supposed to be the type of people that are operating in this society. You're, you're for the betterment of, of the community. We have people in our congregation that are, are running for uh, school boards and they're running for office. We have people that are, that are running for Republicans and Democrats in office. It's, a, it's bizarre, but it's, it's a thing. And here's what I want to challenge you with is this. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Operate as the best citizen you could possibly, but you don't give Caesar your heart. You don't give Caesar your allegiance. Because you owe that to who? To your king. And ditch whatever group or movement competes with that kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that you give us the capacity to avoid thinking that the kingdom we belong to is the kingdom. The movement or party or ideology that we subscribe to because we think it's the best one, that we never have a false gospel perspective on it, that it doesn't itself have holes. Give us humility. Give us passion. I got above and beyond anything else, Lord. We pray that we operate in such a way that the lost in our world see us as representing a better kingdom because of the way that we operate with one another and the way that we treat them. And we'll give you the thanks for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Love you, church. We'll see you next week.